Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking Reflections, our special week of podcasts at the end of National Poetry Month. It's Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast. Um, and I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter Munley. And as always, we've got another great poem for you today. Um, and before we get going, if you have a moment, we would very much appreciate it. If you would give us a rating, give us a review. Um, it helps us uh, reach new listeners and it helps us defeat the almighty algorithm. We don't like the algorithm, but we respect it as our authority and we um, will try to defeat it if we can, but we need your help. The poem we have for you today is by the poet William Butler Yeats. And I'm gonna try to keep my shoes on and my hat on my head because Yeats is a poet who I did for my college uh, little senior year thesis thing. And as a consequence, I know a little too much about him and um, I can get a little excited, which is why I've held off for nearly a hundred episodes in talking about a poem, but you know, you can only hold back so much. I'm um, very impressed. <laughs> True <laughs> or false, do you have a Yates impression? Oh my gosh, I do have a Yates impression. Um, for those who don't know, Yeats, old Irish poet. Um, he was born, I think, in the late 1800s, but most of his poems were the early 1900s and into like the 30s and something like that. Won the Nobel Prize. I mean, he was a very serious man. And um, I don't think he had a lot of humor in him, but very complex. But anyway, he was a very intense reader of his poetry and there's a few recordings of his poems and they're so amazing. One of his most famous poems is the Lake Isle of Innisfree and you can listen to that one. And I, <laughs> um, can we have a like, little taste? I could the give people, you a little the taste. People want a little taste, <laughs> a taste of Yates. <laughs> okay. It goes something like, I will rise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nineteen rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live And then alone. it ends in like, in the deep heart's core. In the deep heart's core. Yay! Um, but In Is Free is not the poem we're talking about today. The poem we're talking about today is a wonderful early poem called The Old Men Admiring Themselves in the Water. And we'll jump right into it. The Old Men Admiring Themselves in the Water. I heard the old, old men say, everything alters and one by one we drop away. They had hands like claws and their knees were twisted like the old thorn trees by the waters. 
I heard the old, old men say, all that's beautiful drifts away like the waters. It's a very cool poem. I love this one. In my thesis thingy, I talked about three poems and this was the first one. I love this poem in part just because for me, as I'm sure all of you will have gathered, sound and poetry is like my favorite thing. Um, and like Yeats is one of those poets who is very, um, you know, all good poets pay attention to sound, but he was like incredibly um, particular and intentional about his sounds. Um, and he also comes from like an oral Irish tradition, um, you know, with ballads and um, a lot of those things. And so even though his poems were, you know, written and printed, actually when he, apparently when he would uh, be writing his poems, he would like chant them and bang his fist on the table so that he may, he got the rhythm down. So, you know, it would be like, I heard the old, old men say it like he would, and at the old, it would be like, he would bang his fist. On I the, heard the old, old yeah. men say everything <laughs> alters and one by one we drop away. <laughs> exactly. Wow. You know, that's uh, interesting. I, uh, I went to a talk when uh, her book, The Carrying, came out, I went to a talk by Ada Lamone, mm. and she was talking about how she writes, um, and she was saying that she writes everything out loud. Like, she talks it as she's doing it every time. And I think it was the poet Ellen Bethea, who is a Vermont poet who was on my dad's podcast, and she was talking about, she has sort of a similar process, and she was saying that she just puts her line breaks wherever she stops to take breath, which is, was like a mind-blowing thought to me of <laughs> just like well that's certainly one way to do it um, <laughs> yeah yeah but it's interesting that there's you know such a long lineage kind of unsurprisingly i guess but i feel like spoken word poetry is like the modern iteration of what it really like it, it gets tagged as like this new thing um but really it's just a contemporary iteration of what used to be these you know fairly long-standing oral traditions that have really really deep roots but it gets treated like it's you know some wild new thing Right, exactly. No, yeah, and Yeats actually was like a terrible speller. So like the writing part of it, like he had his, I think his brother, or maybe his sister, like when he was like, okay, this is done and ready to like go to submit, he would have someone like his brother or sister like actually write it out because he couldn't, <laughs> he was going to misspell a bunch of things. Um, so especially for Yeats, like it was about the sound. And he also, he had this whole, like, you know, he was, he did seances and he had this whole like mystical idea about the world. Um, but like, he also thought of his poems sometimes as like, they were chants that like could get you into a place. But the way that that would happen is like through the, the blood of the rhythm of the music of the, you know, the poems. Um, he also was so serious about this stuff is that it wasn't just like, oh, rhythm is important. It also was like, you know, pentameter 
which you know like the the five beat uh ten syllable line is like a eurocentric line or whatever and like the you know the like tetrameter with four that's like good for conventional speech like he had theories about like very <laughs> technical ideas about poetic meter or whatever which makes him very satisfying to like sub study and write about as like an english major because you're trying to find meaning in like all these decisions and like a lot of times you can find meaning in like this poem is about this which goes to this and like this image is important because of why but in yates you can be like okay this syllable is stressed here and that is a symbol of death and it's like actually has some legitimacy with yates because he was so serious about it um and he was kind enough to talk about his process at such great length and in such great detail that's always when you've got an artist who's willing to do that for you it makes it a lot better yeah no i know yeah he his writings about poetry like poetry as a form are very interesting one of the coolest things that his idea which i which although i don't like um take it as seriously i think as he does um it has informed kind of like in the way that i often talk about how like you have your sentence rhythm and your sort of line rhythm and they can compete and that can be kind of like an interesting place of energy he often talked about how there are two rhythms like going on simultaneously and that there's like a ghost rhythm that basically is underneath where like the blood is and like you can make when they line up it's like doing one thing and when they're like against each other uh it's like another thing and then it's like there's also this there's like an irish rhythm that he's like trying to pit against the colonial english rhythm sometimes um which is getting pretty you know it's like pretty wild um that's really cool because there's such a crossover again with like other art forms obviously music but specifically like a lot of jazz drummers talk about incorporating ghost notes in their playing um and particularly there's a great video he's not necessarily a jazz drummer but the most entertaining drumming videos you can find are bernard purdy creator of the purdy shuffle there is no one who is like on a cellular level in tune with a groove as this dude um but he also is just like feeling it while he's playing and he sort of makes vocalizations as he's going so he's like but there's this one video where he sort of takes you through the building blocks of the Purdy Shuffle. It's like a six minute video on YouTube. Everybody should check it out. Um, <laughs> but he's playing and he's incorporating the little ghost notes that go within it and talking about what they mean. Uh, and at one point he's like, don't worry about the ghost notes. That's just the reverb. Those ghost notes ain't nothing but rebound. But it feels to me like sort of a similar, like the way he thinks and feels about drumming like there's a level of the rhythm that he feels and he's choosing which parts of it to articulate at any given time like there is a beat happening on so many levels in his head that he choose like he hears the parts that every single drum and cymbal could be playing at any given time 
and with his sticks and hands he is just choosing which ones he wants at any given moment like it feels like that's the level at which the beat operates for him and uh i feel like that's a large part of how yates is like putting sounds out in a poem like this like he's thinking of all of that at once and then choosing how he's he's putting it in place yeah that's really interesting no i think that's really true and i think like the way that you know there's like a way of thinking about it that you know you can assign like meaning to it but in terms of i do think it is true in like all good rhythmic art whether it's poetry or music the interplay of like kind of maybe the clearest way of saying it is like actual rhythm and like expected rhythm is like Mm. where a lot of the coolness and like energy comes from and like the expected rhythm i think is like kind of like the ghost beat or the ghost note or the ghost rhythm where like even something as simple as like something kind of funky where there's like there's like the space where it's like kind of thing um like the one you wait as long as possible to hit the one yeah like the that's like the most literal version of it where like the gap the part where they're not playing the the listeners are like where's the next note and that's like when you hit when then when you get to it it's like oh yeah tight um (laughs) which anyway um i i do feel like yates does that really well I mean, the thing that I think about with all of that in relation to this poem, at least, is that because of the sounds that he's using and because of the rhythm that he's deploying, even though there are straight ahead, straight ahead end rhymes, they don't hit that hard. Like in your reading of it, you don't feel those end rhymes the way you would in a lot of poems because they're there. Say, away, knees, trees, and say in a way again, alters, then has waters that it picks up twice later on but it doesn't feel rhythmically like you get to the ends of those lines and those words are the ones that are hitting with each other in the same way that a lot of poems would tend to throw more emphasis towards their end rhymes. Um, They're there and you can hear them, but it doesn't feel like that's where, you know, if we're talking about a beat, those are the, (laughs) those are the, the, the parts that are being like subsumed amongst it um, amongst other pieces. Yeah, no, that's really right. And it's cause it's interesting to that point there yeah there is like a very direct rhyme scheme and in a lot of like especially when you have sort of when you have like end rhymes that are exact you know like knees and trees sometimes you want them to hit hard but a lot of times you know one of the kind of marks of a like beginning poet is like the rhyme is so loud and it's like you know it's just like that's all you can you don't even know what was just said because you're just like, okay, you just rhymed love with above and I just hear that and only that kind of thing. But what he does is the poem sort of starts out as a ballad in a ballad form. And the there's a lot of parts to a ballad, but one of the main parts is that you have a four beat line and a three beat line and then alternates. And it kind of starts that way. So you have... I heard the old, old men say, everything alters and one by one we drop away. So the first line is four beats. You know, I heard the old, 
old men say. Um, old men is like a little blurry, but it's basically, you know, four stressed, where herd is stressed, old is stressed, men is stressed, say is stressed. Then everything alters is kind of your three, um, where you have two parts of everything and then alters. Um, and then, and one by one, we drop away. That's kind of the clearest one where it's like alternating and one by one, we drop away. Um, and then they had hands like claws and their knees. So this is where it starts to get kind of interesting because that's, I would argue it's also a three beat line, even though it's quite a bit longer, but like the important, there's only three important words in it. So it's like they had hands like claws and their knees. You know, there's a lot of like those small words like they and and, which are kind of like, I think would be unstressed. It would be, it's, it seems natural to be like they had hands. So hands is your first one. Like claws is your second one and their knees and knees is the, you know, the last one. Um, so right there, you've got four, three, four, three in terms of the stress. So he's kind of starting out with a, with a ballad-ish kind of form, which he did a lot. He has a lot of like very traditional ballads. Um, and, you know, uh, it was a common, both Irish and English form, I think. Um, but then we get a little weird. So then we're like, and their knees were twisted like the old thorn trees by the waters. So this were twisted like the old thorn trees, I think is still like kind of a four stressed. Uh, so we're not confused yet per se. Um, you know, we've got, we're twisted like the old thorn trees, which is they're both thorn trees is a little confusing because it's they're both kind of important words that you might want to lean into but um the you might still consider it like one foot uh this is a very weird greek word but you know like many some people have heard of ims and iambic pentameter which is a foot that goes but um um <laughs> unstressed stressed spondy is another one which is where it's like they're both kind of stressed. So spondy itself is a spondy, where you wouldn't say spondy, and you it wouldn't, <laughs> which is funny to say. Um, but you also like spondy, spondy. <laughs> it's like spondy, um, but where each syllable gets kind of equal stress. So I feel like thorn trees is kind of like a spondy foot where thorn and trees are similar. Um, so, so far we're feeling the ballad. You know, we've had four, three, four, three, four. But then we have this part by the waters. And that one is only four syllables long. And I think it's really only one stress where it's the wa in waters by the waters and as a like maybe this is again you know you have your i am you have your spondy the other common one is a trochee which is like the opposite of an i am which is like stressed unstressed um 
waters is a is one of those where like you lean into the wah <laughs> um again much like funk music you lean into the wah you lean into the wah and you don't really lean into the ters and it's one of those things that like it sounds very technical and stupid but it's important in that i think it's trying to describe something that happens naturally which is if you were to try to say waters like an I am, it would sound crazy. And if you tried to say it like a spondy, like waters or something like even, it would also sound a little weird. And so it's just like most people will say waters, uh, where the wa is a little more important. Um, and the the by the, you know, it's like if you tried to say it any other way, like by the waters, like it sounds weird. Like you're not supposed to really lean into the by or the, the it's like by the waters. But what's weird about that is then, then that's its own line. So we've had this kind of regular, you know, what you would say is the like actual rhythm, but then also becomes the expected rhythm, right? So we have the ballad form. That's like, I heard the old, old men say, everything alters and one by one we drop away they had hands like claws and their knees were twisted like the old thorn trees by the waters and it kind of like drops off at the end you've really been especially like and the and one by one they drop away especially because that's like such a perfect four beat line you're like you're in the groove and then like as it starts again it sort of disrupts that. And the actual rhythm is like messed up with the expected rhythm where you have this really short line by the waters. And so one thing, just to bring it right back to what you were saying is like the way that the lines and the sentences are kind of like working within and against the, the ballad form softens the end rhymes of it i think where like if like the the loudest rhyme i think is the i heard the old old men say everything alters and one by one we drop away the away is kind of like you're like oh that's rhyming with say but then there's the everything alters and then you get to by the waters and it's for one, it's not an exact rhyme, alters and waters, but it also has the shorter line, which sort of disrupts it. Um, There's also, even within that beginning part, the expected, you kind of, I feel like I expect the rhythm to repeat to the degree that it would be something like, I heard the old, old men say everything alters and drops away. Like you expect that kind of continued beat and it's actually already disrupted for you. No, that's really right. And we can sort of take a, we've sort of established there's something weird going with the rhythm. Okay. Now the poem itself, what is it talking about? It's this kind of weird poem where it's just like this, they're just looking at some old guys who are looking, the title is quite long and sort of anticipates the over-explanatory James Wright titles where it's like the old men admiring themselves in the water. Like, you don't really need to say all that, but that's really all the poem then goes on to describe is they're like looking at themselves and they're like, 
I mean, I guess you wouldn't necessarily know that they're admiring themselves, but they're certainly like, hey, we're getting old and like, we're going to die. So that kind of sucks. And, you know, it's kind of, I feel like one of the most basic kind of things is, you know, they're commenting on their own mortality and how, you know, they're like not super long for this world anymore. Um, and even as they are still alive, you know, you know, they say at the end, all that's beautiful drifts away like the waters. They no longer have their, what they might've thought, you know, narcissistically as their, their beautiful, youthful, figures or whatever um and you know their age shows and so it's kind of like you know a classic passing of the time kind of thing and so it's like sort of a common idea that's in this poem but what's interesting to me is the way that the form is kind of is expressing that or like and the other thing too is that so there's the rhymes the end rhymes that we've talked about but there's a lot of other like echoes and repetitions that are in this poem. So like, you know, so we have our end rhyme, say, away, knees, trees, altars, waters, waters. Then we also have like repeating lines themselves. You know, I heard the old, old men say, then that comes back. I heard the old, old men say. Um, and then the thing that they say, like also, is sort of a repeat of what they had said the first time, you know, everything alters, we drop away, all that's beautiful drifts away. There's also like, he could have just said, I heard the old men say, but he repeats old twice each time. You know, I heard the old, old men say, which he then says again. And yeah, so there's a lot of like echoes in that sense. And then there's also this, the men are talking. And so the poem is like repeating something said, you know, already. And actually it kind of goes back to our old friend, Walter Ong a little bit, perhaps, where, you know, I think if you think about this as like uh, a spoken, what is the meaning of like oral traditions and like orality generally, one of the principal differences between something spoken and something written is that as soon as you say something, it's gone, except in the form of an echo. But it's, it's ephemeral, it's dying. You can repeat something, but like when you write something down and you print it, like it's there for as long as the material survives, basically. And so to me, the poem is kind of like, I feel like it's, it's use of rhymes and echoes draws attention to spokenness itself and orality itself. The emphasis on the spoken and the rhymes and the echoes, I think sort of basically reinforce the idea that's kind of being observed in the poem, which is like, like we as mortal bodies and old men alter and change and drop away and drift away like the waters sound too does that right um and like you can repeat it and you can echo but you know 
um, we are as ephemeral as the sound of our own voices kind of thing, which I feel like is kind of cool. And the concept of echoes as pertains to this poem is something that I was thinking about um, because of the fact that these old men are admiring themselves in water a la Narcissus, even if what they see is not a uh, you know beautiful young visage. And of course, the origin of Echo is that the wood nymph cursed by Hera to be unable to speak comes upon young Narcissus while he's in the wood and in an effort to win his affections repeats his own words back to him. Uh, so the fact that these guys are looking at themselves in a pool of water put me in mind of that. But also, as you were pointing out, like the repetition of old over and over again and this idea of sound, much like age decaying away, is, is sort of all felt very wrapped up tight in a nice little mythological bow to me <laughs> yes exactly no that's really right um yeah and this poem's interesting because they're kind of like both echo and narcissus in like one because they're repeating themselves and sort of trapped in that same way that echo is but they're the ones looking at themselves in the water in the same way that narcissus is so it's kind of like this weird, they're like the hybrid figures. And the kind of like to sort of tie back to the, to the, the way that the lines and the ballad form was being disrupted. Another way that this kind of is being reinforced is like the shortening of the line is like kind of clips the poem off in a way. So, you know, you, you kind of, you, you expect you've gotten your, we're twisted like the old thorn trees and you've been used to the ballad form. And so you're expecting a three beat line and you only get by the waters. And then that happens again. I heard the old, old men say, oh, that's beautiful drifts away like the waters. And that also with the fact that the last word is a trochee or, you know, ends with an unstressed, you could argue is like another reinforcement of like, sound is cutting off even before what you had expected it to, right? Because you you think there's gonna be two more beats in the line and then it's kind of nipped in the bud. And then it's repeated again, and then it's sort of nipped in the bud. So there's this like really, I feel like interesting use of like expectation of sound to kind of like basically like mime the idea that's like in the poem, which is like sound dies and so do we kind of thing, um, which I feel like is pretty cool. And the last Very sort cool. of like, Yeats had this, as I kind of had said, this idea about what tetrameter was, like the four beat line and like how it was like conventional prose speech. And he kind of thought that the ballad was like, the Irish form in a way, um, and that the pentameter, you know, the five beat line was more approaching like the English or the Eurocentric, like modernity kind of thing, which is like, okay, it's totally crazy because it's just like one beat less and one beat more kind of thing. But Yeats was a very serious man, which is like what I've been um you had a lot of theories about things a lot sure of, lots he, of very specific theories he was about very, a lot of things it's very like specific. ghosts <laughs> yes like ghosts um 
Yes, I mean, he had a whole cosmic vision that was very detailed. And at any rate, <laughs> if you sort of like lay aside the validity of, you know, can we really accept that five beat lines are Eurocentric or something and that the ballad is Irish? The fact that he believed it is enough sometimes. And one way of thinking about the by the waters part is that it's too short of a three beat line of the ballad. But the other way of thinking about it is that it's kind of like leaning into a five beat line, especially the fact that it's part of one sentence, like we're twisted like the old thorn trees by the waters. Like it lines up pretty well. And then that happens again where all that's beautiful drifts away like the waters. Um, like if you put those line, those two lines on one line, you'd have be like, well, that's like a pretty easy, like a decent pentameter line basically. Which is to say that the poem starts as a kind of ballad and it ends up sort of leaning into on the one hand, this cutoff ballad, which has its own implications, and on the other hand, leaning into a kind of pentameter. And I sort of think that one thing that the poem is doing is like this kind of hybrid form where it's like partly a ballad, but it's partly like modern in pentameter kind of thing. And the thing about Yeats was that he like, so the last thing, and this is this is the last layer, is there was a kind of uh, poem form called the Isling, which was like basically it was kind of like a like a like a nationalist Irish kind of story where there would be this beautiful female goddess who would appear to this. <laughs> guy and then he basically would be like we can be free and like it would be kind of like the story of like yearning for a free island kind of thing which was a form and basically Yeats was skeptical of both this kind of romantic idea of a free island but he also was skeptical of you know the modern European utilitarian way of the world. And he didn't really, he kind of was angry. And so it wasn't like he just picked a third way. He just kind of like was against both of them. Uh, and he was a very contrary man. And so in the same, and so in the same way that the old men are kind of like echo and narcissist, they're also like a version of the Isling where they're kind of admiring you know, this beautiful vision, except that the vision happens to be themselves. And they're also old. And so it's like this kind of like ironic yearning for independence could be a way to read it. And so it's on the one hand, tapping into this Irish sort of nationalist genre, but then also tapping into this Greek Ovid narcissist myth. Um, and on the one hand, tapping into this ballad form. And then on the other hand, it has very, you know, conventional 
language and has this pentameter going on. And so it's these kind of like hybrid things happening, you know, and the men are both echo and narcissus. And the final kind of thing is like, although the sounds are ephemeral and are dying, there's so much echoing and like so much repetition to the point that it seems unnecessary, that it's like this both kind of like insistence on it and also it's like uselessness kind of thing, which like to me speaks to this like trying to articulate or, you know, have a poem that's contending with these impulses in one like kind of hybrid way. Um, and the hybridness is important because like, you know, Yeats, I think at the time this poem was written, there wasn't a free Ireland. Like there, you know, I Ireland hadn't, he lived through Irish independence, but at this point he was, you know, a colonial subject in a certain kind of way, even though he was a bit of an Anglophile and liked to live in London. And so one idea that, that comes out of like post-colonial theory is the idea of hybridity, where you have on the one hand, your own sort of, you know, your native identity or whatever, and then you have imposed upon you the colonial identity. And so it's like, what what does one make of both a colonial, what does a colonial subject and what does a post-colonial subject who's still like living with the reverberations of colonialism, um, how, how do they be in the world when they have these two things that like have, that are sort of integral, but like opposed, you know, in a kind of way. So you kind of get situations where like a common thing is like, missionaries come, they convert, you know, people in India or people in Africa or people in the Americas to Christianity. And like, they, yes, they're converted to Christianity, but they incorporate their indigenous religious traditions into their Christian faith. And so you have this kind of hybrid Christianity that on the one hand has the Christian colonial imprint, but on the other hand, like maintains you know, the things that are them before. And it's this kind of like, you know, this hybrid thing. So for Yeats, he's Irish, but of course he's steeped in the English literary tradition, which is to him a colonial tradition. And he's trying to navigate, like, you know, he's, he's rejected going for a purely oral poetry, which might be like a kind of, way to go, but he's navigating this written poetic space, which is the domain of the, the British colonizers. And, you know, there's this kind of question of like, how can you, you know, be Irish in, on the English page or whatever. And so one idea from post-colonial theory is like using this idea of hybridity to like, that's like a helpful lens to sort of see how different people navigate that kind of space. And Yeats, because he was so insane about his meter, like one thing that's so cool is like, I feel like you can, 
see this like idea of hybridity manifesting itself at the level of meter where he's kind of working in this ballad, this Irish ballad with this maybe colonial English pentameter with this Irish Isling nationalist story and the Greek canonical and now colonial Ovid myth of echo and narcissus um, and kind of putting them together and kind of seeing what happens. Um, but of course, because he's a little pessimistic, what you have in this poem is like a kind of static image of these men sort of looking at themselves in the water and being like, everything drifts away. And it's, I, f I feel like the last kind of thing that, like whether or not you care about the sort of socio-political ramifications of a poem written a hundred years ago or something. To me, I love this poem because you can read it and it's a beautiful poem about that sounds beautiful and is like very elegant, I think, like in the way that the rhythms move and is both structured but seems natural, I think. Um, and just paints a really beautiful image where there's just these men looking at themselves and they're like, man, one by one we drop away. And it's like kind of sad, but also like very vivid. And you could read that without any knowledge of who wrote it or whatever the context and be like, that's kind of a, this is a nice, beautiful poem. But then if you kind of know the context, like, suddenly this poem, which seems so simple, is like, in fact, almost by virtue of the sound alone, like a really intense, complicated political reckoning. And yeah, it's like, cool. <laughs> it's very cool. And it's made all the more static because they're just repeating themselves almost as they look at their reflections. And then you realize that the degree to which there is anything non-static, it is this idea of just like decay. Right. So it's either that everything's standing still or everything's crumbling. Yeah, right, exactly. But yeah. there's almost a peacefulness to that too, because it's like the water. And so it's this sense of a very gentle flowing kind of, you know, it's not like everything is destroyed and becomes rubble and it's terrible. It's like all this beautiful stuff will leave just as beautifully as it was here. Like there's a, there's a sense of, a sense of sort of natural, like it's okay. Um, yeah. No, I think that's really right. And there's definitely a lot of his poems that are much more tormented and violent. And um, I think it's really right that this is definitely not one of them. And he's kind of like, it's, it's much more meditative and reflective on this sort of problem meditative um, and reflective you say <laughs> i know that's kind of why i was that's kind of why i was thinking about it um because it's also like being here there's a lot of stasis in a way um i mean obviously in many parts in hospitals and in many parts of the world right now it is not a static situation but for people who are just quarantined or whatever there's a lot of stasis 
And that's sort of been the effect on the world at large. There's a sense of everything kind of, everything that is not about this stopping for a while, even though it hasn't fully, but like for the most part, the whole world is is pausing to take notice of what's going on. Yeah, exactly. To me, it was kind of like, I don't know. I've been thinking of these poems because I'm like, stasis, that's a, I don't like that <laughs> in my life right now. And then I'm like, oh, this poem is about stasis and it's so beautiful and it's so interesting and like also dynamic and like totally, even as it's describing something in stasis, it's doing so in a complicated and interesting way. And yeah, it just kind of was like, diving into the poem was interesting in its own right and also just like helpful as another way of thinking about this kind of new fact of my life and our lives you know in a way that was kind of yeah just sort of refreshing it i guess um should we read it again uh yeah let's read it again all right the old men admiring themselves in the water. I heard the old, old men say, everything alters and one by one we drop away. They had hands like claws and their knees were twisted like the old thorn trees by the waters. I heard the old, old men say, all that's beautiful drifts away like the waters. for listening you can keep up with us on facebook at facebook.com slash close talking or on twitter at close talking you can follow me and get in touch with me at connor m stratton or jack on twitter at jack rossiter munn you can also send us an email at close talking poetry at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you if there's another reading you have of this poem we discussed or any other poem we've discussed, or if there's a piece or work or poem that you'd like us to discuss in a future episode. <laughs>